0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast show on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Giles Tremlett, author of the book The International Brigades, Fascism, Freedom, and the Spanish Civil War. Giles, welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Well, thank you very much, and greetings from, uh, from Spain.
1: <laughs> I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
2: Well, I'm a historian and a journalist. Uh, I'm British-born, as I'm sure your readers, your listeners will tell from my accent, Uh, but I'm also a Spanish national, and uh, I've spent the last uh, 30 years uh, here in Spain, mostly writing about uh, Spain, either in, uh, in newspapers, particularly The Guardian and The Economist, or as a historian uh, in a series of books in which I've covered from the 15th century uh, onwards. Um, But this book is very much about uh, the 20th century and a subject that's really uh, very alive today. The Spaniards uh, still haven't really come to terms with with the Civil War of the
1: 1930s and with the dictatorship that, that followed that. You I was thinking that that comes across very well in the beginning of your book when you describe meeting some of the last survivors who had served in the international brigades. What was it that led you to write the book? Was it that 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 sense that that these people were passing or or were you motivated by uh, other interests as well?
2: Well, I think uh, uh, several things combined. One is that these people were really uh, just about to die out. I start off my book with uh, a character called Virgilio Fernandez del Real, who um, uh, was a Mexican, came to stay with me uh, for a while, a couple of years ago, and who sadly uh, passed away shortly after that, aged uh, 100. And, um, and the other brigaders now have also all died, as far as we know. So in that sense, I felt it was time to write their history. But also for anyone who's been uh, who's interested in the Spanish Civil War, who's interested in the 20th century history of Spain, uh, the International Brigade was such an amazing phenomenon at the time and are so prominent in people's minds that um uh it's really something that you know i felt i had to i wouldn't say uh, get out of the way but it's something i had to i had to know fully about before i could uh before i could go on any further so uh in many ways this has been uh an indulgence because it's something i wanted to do for a very long time but also it was an opportunity to write what i hope for the moment anyway is the that, that the, let's call it the definitive current history, um, because, of course, it can always be uh, um, uh, improved on by someone else later on. But anyway, a history of uh, a remarkable phenomenon, uh, a history that nobody's written for about 30 or 40 years and was badly in need of, uh, of updating and, uh, and could be done very well thanks to um, you know, the amount of archive material that's now,
1: that's now open. One of the things I was especially fascinated by as I read your book was the sheer diversity of the international brigades that you capture. I mean, the diversity was very well known. You you read about it in in, in works like uh, Orwell's, uh, you know, famous memoir of 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 the of the Spanish Civil War. But it, you really do capture that that sense of the diversity. Throughout the war, all these different people and, and, and the causes they served. I was wondering if you could start us off by by talking a bit about, uh, you know, what were the international brigades and 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 what you know how what was it that that led to the their their involvement in, at the very start of the Spanish Civil War? What was going on in Spain, and 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 why did these people, uh, from you know very different places, very different backgrounds, you know, initially decide to join what you know the the you know this conflict against this, uh, military uprising.
2: Okay. So I think to, to, to set the scene, we have to remember that we're in 1930s Europe. Um, uh, there's a historian called Piers Brendan who's re- written a book called uh, the dark valley, which I think the title itself sort of sums up very nicely. The state of Europe in the 1930s post the first world war, uh, post the great crash of the 1920s uh, in turmoil and disarray and with, um, uh, with fascism uh, on the march through uh, much of, uh, of Europe with um, um, democracies falling, fairly recent democracies uh, falling and going over to authoritarian governments with uh, communism Uh, having appeared really quite recently, and uh, and a state of sort of tension in which I think everybody was, well, not everybody, but a lot of people were expecting another uh, world war, and the first war obviously was traumatic enough. So when in Spain in 1936... Um, there's an uprising by reactionary generals led by, um, uh, Francisco Franco, who will become the dictator later on to overthrow, uh, Spain's very short lived experiment with democracy. It had only been a democracy for six years. Um, many people saw in what was happening a threat to democracy, uh, uh, but also uh, an expansion of the of the broader world of fascism and its allies, and uh, especially since uh, Franco was supported by Hitler and by Mussolini, who sent troops, sent airplanes, sent pilots, uh, and were a very important part of his uh, of his war machine. So there was a feeling that this democracy had to be defended. There was also a feeling that actually Spain was the only place where you could go and fight uh, fascism. Um, and, um, and so from the very beginning in July 1936, when, uh, when the fighting starts with a failed coup basically, um, um, lots of international volunteers appear and uh, some are already here in Spain. Uh, there's a remarkable event that's meant to take place, meant to start on exactly the same day that the Civil War starts, which is known as the, um, the People's Olympiad uh, in Barcelona. Uh, this was a, a sort of rival Olympic Games uh, to the Games that Hitler was about to hold in Berlin, which were meant to be a sort of massive propaganda exercise for the Nazis and for the, the Aryan race. And, um, and so this was an opportunity to do something. And as uh, Europe was also actually full of political exiles from Germany, from Italy, from other places, from authoritarian regimes in Poland and Hungary and other places, Well, very quickly, a lot of people um, turned up just as volunteers, just coming on their own um, uh, and looking for something to join. Uh, What happens after a few months in October of 1936 is that rather than just being allowed to join random militia units, which are the ones that were set up to to fight uh, Franco who took most of the established army with him, The international brigades, per se, were were set up as an international unit, a place where volunteer fighters could go. Uh, And uh, it was organized basically by Comintern, by the International uh, Communist Organization. Um, But its its spirit was uh, a popular front spirit. In other words, it was, you know, very broad. Uh, broad left like the government uh, in Spain itself or indeed the government in France at, at that time. Um, and then once it was organized well, um, uh, it was, you know, a lot more people came together, but very particularly uh, these uh, this crowd of international volunteers appeared from all parts of the world, from more than 60 countries uh, of the time which in today's terms uh, is more than 80 countries uh, today. And so you have this uh, remarkable army of 35,000 men and women who speak uh, a couple of dozen languages, who come from all over the world, who mostly are not uh, trained soldiers, uh, but who nevertheless will be employed as shock troops uh, during the war. And, uh, and who become a sort of focus of attention for the rest of the world as it, as it looks on that the Spanish Civil War is best sort of understood in terms of its, the attention it garnered as sort of being the Vietnam War at the moment. It's the war that everybody was watching. And, um, and the international brigades gave many people a sort of uh, a prism that they could look through because there were people of their own nationality, of their own country, uh, fighting in that, uh, in that war, including, uh, 2,800, uh, Americans from the, um, uh, mostly in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, including a very high percentage of Jews, about 10% altogether. And that's interesting, gives us a story of the, the first armed Jewish resistance, uh, to fascism. Uh, in the American Brigade, in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, we have the first black Americans who are allowed to command white troops because in segregated America that wasn't possible. It was only possible in the International Brigade and it wouldn't be possible in World War II uh, in the American armed forces. So lots of things are going on and there's a massive amount of ideological turmoil uh, just on the left in Spain itself um socialists communists, anarchists, trotskyists um were all uh supposedly fighting together, but sometimes at uh, one another's throats. so broadly speaking, this is a sort of it's like jamming the whole of Europe's problems into one um into one small jar and then sort of setting fire to it um, <laughs>
1: That is a very good analogy.
2: <laughs> That's what's happening in Spain. And really, it's it's that, you know, for many historians, uh, you know, it's the first battle of World War Two. That's the other way to see it.
1: I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon the, uh, how it, what, what it was that, how it was that people got to spain because as you describe it it's you know, you you, you've, you mentioned how the common turn was very heavily involved in recruiting you also described unions and yet when you detail the stories in the book and, and yours is a book that that is just chock full of stories you talk about how so for how for many of them it, there was it wasn't a sense of they were recruited somewhere and transported as a body. Oftentimes they made their way individually or as you know as as you know collections of friends or or in ones and twos to uh, you know make their way individually to Spain to uh, join this cause. Was there any sort of patterns or, or or common congregation points? How did people oftentimes with with zero knowledge of Spain or Spanish end up you know? Being able to find their their way to the right place and to you know be able to formally join the cause.
2: Well, I mean, to begin with, it was pure chaos. Um, people turned up as they could. There are stories of people arriving by bicycle or stowing away on ships or or, or basically walking to um, um, uh, to Spain. So you know, some people it took weeks to. To get here, there are stories of people cycling from Denmark or coming from Poland and having to cross uh, rivers and um, and uh, uh, and sort of hitch rides on carts and things like that. Um, Once we get uh, a formal form of organisation from the Comintern, well, that changes. There's a sort of uh, there are a few agreed meeting places in Paris, uh, in Marseille, in France, and um, and then there's an established way of getting there, which is mostly by train, sometimes by boat, and uh, and most volunteers remember that this sort of remarkable trip, where they uh, are cheered as they go along uh, each tiny train station they had to stop at, and there are crowds of peasants throwing food at them or, or, or offering them wine or, or, and cheering, cheering them on, um, that's before the frontier is cut because um, the rest of Europe and the United States decided that uh, foreign volunteers shouldn't be allowed into Spain and at that stage the borders were cut off, they were patrolled by a sort of international force and people had to sneak over the Pyrenean mountains at night and um, there are some magnificent descriptions of you know making it to the top of the mountain at at uh, daybreak and seeing the the whole of Spain lying uh, beneath your feet.
1: Now, what you describe over the course of the book is, is is sort of an evolution of not just the war but the experience of the international brigades. I, I was wondering if you could explain what their contribution was at the very beginning. Were they able to make an immediate impact? Uh, Was there any was there any uh, awareness of the of the Republican leadership of of any of the value of it? At at what point do they start making a a noticeable contribution to the course of the war?
2: Well, they start making a noticeable contribution from the very beginning. Um, uh, And I'm talking now about the International Brigades as a formal unit. So they're formed in October, uh, early in November, then very poorly trained, very poorly armed, but they are rushed to Madrid, which is about to fall to Franco's forces, um, to try and stop that from happening. And um, and they're remarkably effective. Um, uh, everybody expects Madrid to fall. In fact, Madrid uh, doesn't fall at all. It survives another, uh, another two years. And in those first few uh, crucial battles, even though the international brigades are very rough and ready soldiers they've had you know very little training their they guns jam um, they don't really know what they're doing they're actually uh, better than some of the um, the Spanish militia units and um, and so they are hailed uh, almost immediately as the as the saviors of Madrid um, that's partly propaganda and it's only uh, partially true but but it certainly is true. They're part of uh, this force that that saves Madrid. They're not all of it by any means, and there are lots of uh, Spaniards, obviously, uh, fighting as well. But yes, they're remarkably effective uh, right from the beginning. In fact, I think their most effective moments are uh, over that those first months or the first year of their um, of their existence, where they go into battle. Um, Uh, Often, sort of, naively convinced that uh, as individuals, and this is a narrative history, so I'm telling uh, lots of individual stories, and they are, you know, naively convinced that their sort of ideological righteousness will allow them to win and possibly uh, protect them from bullets coming from the other side, which is tragic and explains why so many of them died, because, um, you know, one in five died in Spain and uh, another one in five uh, were wounded or injured, and, uh, and and another unknown number went missing. So, you know, it was a real sacrifice in that sense.
1: Now, we, you've, the title of your book is the International Brigades, and you refer to them as brigades. But one of the things that your book makes clear is that, is that thinking of them as a brigade, as a formal military unit with all of the, you know, regimentation, organization that that implies is uh, is, is a misnomer, that, that it, it's, it's far more uh, chaotic, it's, it, it's, it's far more fractured. And I found it fascinating because as you explain it, it really does reflect that point that you make early in the book, that the only thing that, that united all these people was the, their shared anti-fascism, that you're talking about groups that, you know, but for the fact they were fighting the fascists, might have been fighting each other. Indeed. Um, I mean, uh, one one of the characters who appears in the book
2: is George Orwell, and he's there not so much, not because he joins the International Brigade, he doesn't. He goes to Spain, uh, he comes to Spain and fights, but joins a sort of rival militia group that's Trotskyist, that's not liked by the Communist Party, um, and, um, and famously writes... Homage to Catalonia when uh, he finds himself in uh, uh, a moment in Barcelona when the, these two sides, the Trotskyists and the and the communists, are shooting at it at, at one another. And um, uh, and bizarrely, uh, George Orwell had actually gone to Barcelona because he was fed up with the group he was in and he was about he wanted to join the International Brigades. And had he arrived. Uh, a month earlier and been able to join the brigades, well, he probably would have been sitting on the opposite roof, pointing his gun in the opposite uh, direction. Um, so that's uh, the, the the Orwell experience is, uh, is part of what we know about the, the Spanish Civil War, about the infighting uh, on the Republican side. And that was very damaging. It was very, very damaging to their to their war effort, and uh, and it made it very difficult to um, to coordinate everything. That said, um, within the brigades, um, there was a certain amount of paranoia, um, but mostly at the top, amongst those who had who had uh, sort of who were beginning to live uh stalinism in a in a very sort of direct senior communist sort of a way but at a, at a lower level it was simply you know a group of people mostly working class you know, We know about the poets and the writers um but really mostly working class uh very varied opinions um uh you know fighting together shoulder to shoulder and um and for most of them as individuals it's uh it's a remarkable experience the, as a phenomenon that was very strange for observers, too, who tried to get their, get their head around the idea of this sort of transnational army when there'd last been a, a massive volunteer army like this. And, and the only people at the time they could compare with were the Crusades from the early, from the early Middle Ages. Nowadays, you might point to ISIS, for example, or Al-Qaeda, and say, well, that's a sort of transnational um, um, volunteer army. Um, but um, at the time, it was remarkable. And funny enough, I was reading uh, Hannah Arendt the other day on totalitarianism, and uh, and there they were. They appear in there as well, and she's saying, no, no, the, the, the international brigades were quite frightening for a lot of governments because... Uh, um, precisely because they were international. They didn't fit any sort of easy category. And as a result, governments in uh, liberal democracies didn't know whether to treat them as a good thing or a bad thing, whether they were you know, defending democracy or whether they were a threat to democracy.
1: You described how, as well though, how over time the uh, groups oftentimes Gained individual reputations that that people began to uh, assume things about certain national groups and, and and how they began to assume certain things about ideological groups. And here I'm thinking in particular about the anarchists, who, as you describe, it, as you re- uh, note in your book uh, several times, quickly you know became you know viewed very skeptically because they're being anarchists. They 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 you know had issues with military discipline. Uh, they they weren't seen as very reliable. H- how did all that play out? Within the brigades, and and, and how did that, uh, and and how was that defined by their action on the battlefield? Well, I mean, it's it, it's almost comical at some stages because um,
2: uh, it's not just the anarchists; it's you know a huge number of volunteers uh, consider themselves to be um, you know libertarians, and they don't want to receive instructions. They don't want orders. They want they don't want someone to command them. And um, and all those things, unfortunately, are necessary in in armies. And you see people, uh, you know, having trouble with getting their their heads around around this particular idea. You know, they're writing in their diaries saying, you know, I didn't come here to be bossed around by some, you know, by some officer. You know, that's what that's what our enemy does. That's the sort of you know, that's the uh, the manager against the worker, or the or the foreman against again against the workers. That's not, you know, that's not the kind of war I signed up for. Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's the kind of war everyone signs up for. Because um, you know, if there isn't military discipline and command and and things like that, you're a fairly useless uh military unit. And so within the brigades, you know, heads had to be banged together, people really had to be, you know, forced into um into uh, obeying uh, or observing some kind of discipline. And there were anarchists in the brigade, especially amongst the Italians, um, but there were also anarchist units uh, out in the Republican army, and, uh, and some uh, brigaders actually left the international brigades to go and join those anarchist units, which were sometimes good, but often unreliable, uh, for the very same reasons that i've just uh, that i 've just pointed out, so uh, you know it was a very hard thing to do to, to to come to fight for freedom and the first thing you have to do is give up your personal freedom um, and that's that 's what joining an army is and uh, your personal and the personal freedom that you give up is not just you know having to obey orders it's also you can 't leave if you leave you 're a deserter. And, um, you know, you've signed up to an army and deserters get shot and in some cases in the international brigades, uh, deserters did get shot.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: That was another of the themes that I was seeing over the course of the book, which is how, as the war goes on, there is a, for lack of a better word, regularization that takes place, that over time you have discipline, uh, increasingly asserting itself. Uh, you, you have a, a, a greater degree of, of, of centralization. I was thinking also as well in how you describe the role of women, how at, at we, at the very beginning with, with the coup, uh, and you had the People's Olympiad there. You had a lot of women athletes and journalists who were, uh, you know, eager to join it. They, they they were and they weren't just joining to serve in traditional women's roles. They were there to fight. And how over time, as the war continued, you began to see that greater control asserted. A lot of those women lost those roles, and they began to become more of the traditional roles. But you, you describe women were still very prevalent in among the ranks of the International Brigaders in the way that they had not been. In previous wars
2: yes well right
1: to begin with um you know anybody was welcome uh who wanted to you
2: know pick up a weapon and defend and defend the republic and there were lots of uh uh, uh of foreign women who wanted to do that uh, especially those who were already living uh in barcelona or in madrid and um so the first uh british fighter to lose her life or to lose a life in uh in Spain is an artist, Felicia Brown, uh, who dies when she goes on a behind-the-lines mission before the brigades have even been formed. This is in the, in the early days. Uh, there's a famous Dutch machine gunner called Fanny um, um, who you know, knew how to shoot when most people who were joining the militias uh, didn't actually know, know how to shoot. She came from a sort of middle-class Dutch background and have been taught to, um, to shoot uh, as a sport. Um, and so to begin with, you do get uh, these remarkable women going into the, into the front line, fighting, uh, dying. Um, and, uh, and in fact, many of the sort of most iconic images of the Spanish Civil War are of women uh, bearing arms. Um, there are some marvellous uh, uh, photographs. But what actually happens is that within about six months, the Republican side has decided it doesn't want women in the front line. And so they're all withdrawn. And, um, and by the time the brigades are formed and functioning, that means that uh, the women who join them are largely uh, working as um, um, or as doctors and no- or nurses or in sort of what we might call support roles. So there's one, uh, one of the few who makes it to the front is an American woman, Evelyn Hutchins, who, um, who famously uh, drives trucks and, and ambulances too, I think. Um, but otherwise, they're mostly uh, nurses like Salaria Key, who was a, a black American nurse, the only black American nurse. Um, and... Um, but still, there are hundreds of them. There's, uh, you know, people are still counting the international brigades. We don't know exact numbers, but between eight
1: hundred and a thousand women uh, are there and um, uh, and play their part. You describe as a factor in, in, in how they eventually were, you know pulled out of those combat roles a, a lot of traditional attitudes even among the Spanish Republicans and that gets to another uh, aspect of your book that I thought was very interesting which was the attitude of the of many of the brigaders towards their Republican Spanish Republican comrades as you describe that they weren't always too happy with the people that they were uh, sensibly fighting for that they oftentimes got very frustrated at the fact that, they wanted to fight a particular type of war, and they found that the Spanish Republicans were fighting a very Republican type of war. I was wondering if perhaps elaborate upon some of those attitudes that 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 developed it, and 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 how uh, maybe their uh, views of the the what they were fighting for in terms of Spain changed over time.
2: Well, I mean, there's several. I mean, there's a massive cultural shock going on, obviously, for all the volunteers. It's the 1930s; most people haven't traveled in their in their lives outside their their own country so they they start off with this sort of dual cultural shock one is that they're in Spain a country where they don't speak the language where they don't understand the, the Moors um, uh, and uh, but also they're with a group of you know fellow volunteers who are from all over the world whose cultures they also don't uh, necessarily understand so to begin with there's lots of Sort of complaining about the fact that you know Spaniards, for example, don't want to fight at night. They want to go home and you know tuck their children into bed and have supper with their wives, and you know, and then come back in the morning, and um, <laughs> and this you know annoys the volunteers. But fortunately, the other side is actually doing the same to begin with. So um, so we have this rather sort of uh, again slightly comical situation of you know this war that's fought at. Um, You know, uh, from breakfast till until supper time, but you know, um, but nothing after that. It's rather like the, you know, the British breaking for tea at five p.m. You know, it always uh, stuns other people when it when it happens. Um, In terms of who they were defending, I think actually that overall. I mean, there was a lot of surprises. One was that Spaniards were so poor. So you got a lot of people coming from, say, Britain who thought they were poor because they were working class. And they got to Spain where, you know, some people were, if they had, you know, two cooking pots, that was, you know, that was a good load of possessions to have. And they were amazed by the poverty. But I think overall, I think they were very happy to be fighting uh, for um, for the Republic. They were very happy to be fighting for Spaniards. And, uh, and in fact, you know, in the end, the international brigades have to leave before the war is over. And there's great sadness that they, they feel that they've actually abandoned the Spaniards who they've come to, uh, come to love rather, rather dearly. I mean, um, you know, there's some annoyance because the, the, um, Uh, the sort of northern Europeans and Americans, um, you know, see all these beautiful Spanish girls and don't know how to talk to them and get very annoyed because the Italians and the Cubans are really good at it. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) That's just cultural.
1: (laughs) Now, you mentioned that the international brigades have their uh, greatest impact uh, early in the war. Uh, how does the war play out for them? And and at what point do you start to see uh, the growing awareness that the war is not going to end well for their side?
2: So I think we'd have to divide the war into a few stages, perhaps three or four stages. So to begin with, as far as the brigades are concerned, it's all about saving Madrid. So there's a battle, there's the battle uh, in Madrid itself to stop the city being overrun. And then there are attempts by the Franco side to sort of encircle the city um, uh, with manoeuvres which are actually quite a, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles away or further. And, um, and you get famous battles, the Battle of Jarama, which um, some people might know from, the, from a song about the, the valley of the Jarama. Um, and um, so there are lots of battles around uh, around Madrid and, uh, and the international brigades perform incredibly well in them, and they prevent uh, Madrid from being encircled or from falling. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's, this is a war of attrition as well. It goes on for three years. Um, uh, and the Republican side is basically, though know, it's a democracy. It's abandoned. By all the liberal democracies, by Britain, by the United States, even by France, which originally has a popular front government. Whereas uh, Franco is not abandoned by Hitler or by Mussolini. They all sign up to this farcical non intervention pact, um, which is observed by everybody except Hitler and Mussolini, who send, if there are 35,000 brigaders, well, there are 70,000 regular Italian army. Troops. There are twenty thousand uh, German troops, mostly uh, from the Luftwaffe, from the from the air force, um, and so um, there's an imbalance, and that imbalance grows because the only place uh, that the Republic can get arms from is basically the black market, or or the Soviet Union, or Mexico as a third, is a third option. And Stalin himself uh, loses interest in supplying the Republican side. And so eventually, uh, and the brigades themselves experience this, um, um, you know, Franco builds up sufficient firepower to basically drive them back to the sea. And there's a period uh, in 1938, at the beginning of 1938, the end of 1937, where they are, they're driven all the way across to the Mediterranean, and um, and really by then I think most people know that uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to lose or the Second World War is going to break out and the Allies are going to come to their rescue. Um, uh, and in fact, what happens is the second, uh, sorry, is the first of those scenarios. That they lose, the war is lost on April 1st. Uh, 1939. That's five months exactly before Hitler invades uh, Poland and the Second World War starts. And uh, and so the Brigaders who've been pulled out uh, six months before that, they fight uh, uh, in this tremendous battle over across the river Ebro in uh, in eastern Spain. Um, you know, huge numbers of people die on both sides. Huge numbers of Brigaders die as well uh and it's really an attempt just to keep the war going until it joins up with the Second World War and it fails. So uh by that stage people you know are hoping they can they can resist, but they know that's what they're doing. They're not going to win at that stage. They're just trying to resist until the end. Um so that's what that's that's the very sad tale if you want of the um of the Republic and of the international brigades in the in the war.
1: And that ends the story of the Republic and of the war and of the brigades, but it doesn't, as you go on to demonstrate, it doesn't end the story of the brigaders themselves. I was wondering if you could perhaps speak to the legacy that you described for them. I mean, what, what did they, the survivors take from the experience? How did it shape events like the Second World War? And, and, and how did that continue to be processed after the war into the 1950s and 60s and down to the present day?
2: Well, because we're dealing with a, uh, an international group of people from 60 different countries, we almost get sort of 60 different national stories about, about what happens. But in the broadest sense, for the brigaders who see what they're doing as an anti-fascist fight, the Second World War is actually just the continuation of that fight. And uh and they actually play a remarkable role in that because um uh, they uh are very active in the resistance in France. The first shootings of Germans in occupied France, for example, are carried out uh by former uh by former brigaders. Anyone who knows Paris and looks at the um at the Metro map, at the subway map, we'll see there's a stop called Coronel Fabien. Well, he was an international, uh, an international brigader, uh, who was the first person to uh, shoot a German officer in Paris, uh, and is a resistance hero. Likewise, in Italy, um, uh, many of the partisan armies are led by brigaders. In Yugoslavia, especially, all of uh, Marshal Tito's armies are led by by international brigaders, and. Um, and then in the uh, in the U.S. Army or in the British Army, well, lots of them sign on as well. I have to say, though, they're looked on uh, kind of suspiciously to begin with, and some of them aren't allowed to join because they're because they're communists or because they're considered uh, uh, far too um, left-wing. And um, but anyway, most of them uh, manage to do to do to do some fighting, obviously. Uh, you know, Black Americans who were who had been serving as officers over um, white troops suddenly found themselves again uh, to be serving as just ordinary soldiers or sailors um, with no no possibility to command or even to use their experience, um, which was a, a sorry waste of uh, of, of talent and uh, and and experience. But the end of World War II, sees the defeat of fascism and that for them is a victory Um, because there are so many Jews in fact uh, uh, and and lots of communists who have ended up in camps like Auschwitz. um, They're also the people who lead the sort of internal um, resistance in the final days against the uh, German uh, camp guards. Um, So there's this feeling that they've They've done their bit that they um, you know that they started off fighting fascism before everybody else realized suddenly aha yes you're right you know we do have to fight fascism and this is one of their points you know they to begin with will say fascism has to be fought with arms and everybody's saying, no 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 you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong and then suddenly uh, five months after the Spanish Civil War it's like oh gosh you're right you know we've got, we've got to do this um, so in that sense they feel you know vindicated uh, for what they'd done, uh, they'd done in Spain, um, um, but the Cold War comes along, and suddenly many of them in the West are on the wrong side again. They're looked down upon um, as uh, one of the expressions is as premature anti-fascists, um, which is a, a strange concept if you if you think <laughs> about. It. And um, but then there's another. Uh, bizarre and, you know, not so wonderful story about what happens to the international brigaders who are from Eastern Europe, in other words, whose countries are behind the Iron Curtain. As many of them are communists, you know, the Russians see them as reliable people to, uh, to set up the new regimes in Poland and East Germany and Hungary and Bulgaria and Albania. And uh, uh, and everywhere else, and they get very senior positions. Um, You know, we have prime ministers. There are two effective prime ministers of of East Germany. Um, there are lots of ministers. There are lots of generals, especially in Yugoslavia. It seems the entire army is run by um, brigad- by brigaders. And of course, their speciality is security, and that also means policing. And in the and in the, you know behind the Iron Curtain, we know what that means. And so the founders of one of the most infamous secret police forces in the world, which is the German Stasi. The founder is an International Brigade general, and for uh, virtually the entire lifetime of the Stasi, it is run by International Brigade veterans. So, um, you know, the story is uh, it, it is not all wonderful and wondrous in 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 that sense, not at all. You know, some of them become Hardcore Stalinists, but then again, uh, in the East behind the Iron Curtain, some of them also fall victim to purges precisely because they've been in the International Brigades and therefore they have supposedly uh, been exposed to Trotskyism or to um, or to what becomes known as Titoism because Yugoslavia, uh, General and um, Marshal Tito, breaks from. The Iron Curtain block from the Soviet block, and so anyone who's been hanging out with Yugoslavs is suddenly suspicious. So there are some, you know, ghastly show trials in uh, in Czechoslovakia and Hungary, uh, in which you know former brigaders, you know, um, are forced to admit to sins that they never
1: committed and are shot or hung or imprisoned. Uh, it's one of the things that I, I yeah. By the end of your book, I was appreciating, which was how a lot of that gets lost. I mean, McCarthy, the McCarthy period, they they do uh, single out uh, service to international brigades as uh, as as something to be concerned about. You don't get as much, though, about how this this legacy that you see in Eastern Europe of, you know, these people having this long, uh, you know, careers in government and how so much of that begins or is propelled by their service, you know, in these international brigades in the 1930s, how this has this, this service has this long impact that we don't appreciate, but you know, really extends over the course of the remainder of the 20th century.
2: Yes. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely there. I mean, I, I devote you know, quite a long, uh, final chapter to this, um, but I think it's really, you know, in in a way, it's a, it's a sketch for someone else to to follow up because this hasn't really been been studied as a phenomenon. I mean, there are studies of uh, in East Germany, particularly, which are which are good. But as a as a whole, the influence of the brigaders in uh, uh, in the in the communist bloc has not been um, has not really been been investigated. So you know, is there any historian. Out there, who specialises in all, in all that, I would encourage them to to um, to get to get stuck in. Um, I mean, obviously, in uh, in um, in the United States and in Britain, you know, the reactions are different. So these people are they're being watched very carefully by uh, you know, by the CIA or by the or by the MI6 in in Britain. Uh, my favourite examples of ex-brigaders actually are the, are the British where at one stage you have uh, Jack Jones, who's the head of the Transport and General Workers' Union in the 1970s, deemed to be the most powerful man in Britain because he can stop the lorries, he can stop transport, and he does sometimes. Um, and it's a period of strikes and and and, uh, and you know, quite a terrible time in, in British history. And at the same time, um, another brigader, um, Alfred Sherman, has become uh, the sort of free market guru to this young female politician, up and coming, called Margaret Thatcher, and so you have these two, you know, international brigaders uh, on opposite sides of the of the battle lines in Britain. But I have to say, they would turn up together to the um, uh, to the memorial services and the um, you know and the remembrance. Uh, events and uh, and Alfred Sherman never regretted um, uh, fighting in the International Brigade, though he did regret that he had flirted with communism at one stage. But he still thought that you know that he would fought on the right side, which is not which is something that Ronald Reagan in his day uh, uh, said was not true. He said that you know that the International Brigade, that specifically the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, had fought on the wrong side. Um,
1: which is a fairly remarkable take. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
2: So, I just uh, I just finished a short history of Spain from you know prehistory to yesterday, which has been quite a challenge and is uh, but has been uh, immensely sort of satisfying. Uh, certainly filled in you know a lot of holes in my. In my knowledge, and I'm about to embark on another book, which will be about General Franco and Francoism, and um, I'm not entirely sure what shape it will take. But um, you know, Franco went on to rule as dictator for uh, 36 years. He died in his bed in 1975. So he's very much, you know, the, the the big personality of 20th century Spain. And uh, and a remarkable survivor from that group of sort of right-wing dictators who appeared in the 1930s. Um, You know, he's the the most successful one, basically. And so I'm intrigued to work out why that was, you know, whether this was a specifically Spanish thing, whether it's down to his personality, um, whether he just got lucky, um, you know, how much violence and terror had to do
1: with it um and uh, and that's very interesting too well uh, perhaps when you finish it we could have you uh, back on the new books network to talk about it well that would be lovely
2: that would be lovely in the meantime if people want to read this book it's uh it's narrative history so it's full of you know interesting stories i'm not sure one can really do it justice uh on a on a podcast without going into all the individual stories but we really would be here hours if we had to do that.
1: Well, maybe we could end by asking you, is there one story in particular that really stood out for you as being a, uh, you know, that that particularly was interesting or or was a a revelation for you that you want to share?
2: Well, I think, I mean, there are many of them. I would say there's one incident that really uh, amazes me, which is uh, when a, a, a deserter a Dutch deserter is caught, and uh, and asks to be shot because um, because he feels that's the only honourable end to uh, to a brigader's life, and and considers that yes, he has actually done wrong, where clearly he's actually in the state of um, uh, of shell shock. Um, and that sort of speaks to the kind of remarkable idealism that kind of underlied what people were, were doing. And, um, but apart from that, it really is, you know, it's a choral story. It's 35,000 individuals, um, uh, you know, doing things, doing this remarkable um, uh, thing together. So, I think, um, I'll let people read the book and decide for themselves who they who they find most amazing.
1: <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. Strauss. I hope you have a wonderful day. Mark, thank you very much indeed.